there are those who would say that while the Beatitudes are a nice list of ideals, they are just that, ideals. There are hopes for a future time, descriptions not of our life on earth, but markers on the way toward the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's version of the Beatitudes found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 does kind of play into that possibility with future tense language. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, and so on. That's Matthew's language, Matthew's version. But Luke's version, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain instead of the Sermon on the Mount, would seem to suggest that Jesus isn't looking toward heaven with those teachings. He's talking about the now. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. That's a bit of a contrast with Matthew's future-oriented language, right? Of course, the present tense versus the future tense is one difference. The other is the pronoun. Matthew says they. Luke says you. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. So in Luke's version, it's about you and it's about now. That's a pretty direct kind of orientation and expectation for those of us who want to live in the company of Christ and the way of Christ. But living in the now isn't always easy. We are taught from early on to always remember the past and to perpetually look to the future. And yes, maybe it's the way we've been taught, but it also just might be a human thing. Survival at a very basic level involves learning from the past and anticipating the needs or even the dangers of the future. So in order to survive, we need to have our head on a swivel, looking backwards and forwards all the time until it becomes not just a matter of survival, but a matter of habit. Just this past week on Wednesday morning, as my daughter Lena and I were driving to school, she was driving and I was riding because that's what we've been doing for months now as she accumulates hours on her supervised driving log. As we were driving to school, she noted that there were only two more days left until she could go and get her driver's license. Sixteen years and 90 days is the marker. She'd been counting down for quite a while. Two more months, two more weeks, two more days. But then, as soon as she said, two more days until I get my license, the very next words out of her mouth were, and only nine more months until I turn 17. I turned to her and said, half jokingly, half not, don't say that. 
She knew what I meant. I'm at the stage of life where I am not in a hurry for time to pass. It goes by quickly enough already. We've talked about that. So she is aware of my perspective. She recovered quickly. Well, she said, the brothers have significant birthdays this year. This spring, one of them turns 25 and the other 21. She said it as if to say, it's too late to try to stop time, Dad. If you wanted to stop your children from getting older, you already missed the boat. And of course, I don't want to stop time. I just want to slow it down. As I'm realizing that I want to be more in this moment. And less rushing headlong into the future. It's part of my effort to repent of my lifelong tendency to overlook today. And instead to fix my gaze toward the future, looking for the next good thing, for the solution to the problem, for relief from my worries, for something more exciting, for something fresh and new. But it's a struggle. It's a hard habit to break. Why is it so hard to live in the now? Is the now not enough? In a recent lead article in the Atlantic magazine, Arthur C. Brooks, a so-called happiness expert, actually a social sciences professor at Harvard, says that the secret to satisfaction is to want less. That is, to live less with a greedy eye toward the future. He tells the story of Abd al-Rahman III, the emir and caliph of Cordoba in 10th century Spain, who summed up a life of worldly success at about age 70. I have now reigned over 50 years of victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call. And what did all that mean to him? He continued, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot, he wrote. They amount to 14. There's an example of someone who had quite a life and yet was still not satisfied. Only 14 purely happy days? Compared to someone like that, someone who has all respect, all control, all power, all resources, what chance do we have to live a life of satisfaction? And yet, even if it's not easy to be satisfied with life, it certainly is important Because, as Brooks says, satisfaction is one of the macronutrients of happiness, the other two being enjoyment and meaning. Brooks continues, Time and again I have fallen into the trap of believing that success and its accompaniments would fulfill me. 
On my 40th birthday, I made a bucket list of things I hoped to do or achieve. They were mainly accomplishments only a wonk could want. Writing books and columns about serious subjects, teaching at a top school, traveling to give lectures and speeches, maybe even leading a university or a think tank. Whether these were good and noble goals or not, they were my goals, and I imagined that if I hit them, I would be satisfied. I found that list nine years ago, he continues, when I was 48 and realized that I had achieved every item on it. I had been a tenured professor, then a president of a think tank. I was giving frequent speeches, had written some books that had sold well, was writing columns for the New York Times, but none of that had brought me lasting, the lasting joy I had envisioned. Each accomplishment thrilled for a day or a week, maybe a month, never more. And then I reached for the next rung on the ladder. I wonder what Brooks would think about the sermon on the plain. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. He says that satisfaction is wired into our brains in this way, satisfaction understood as getting what you want. Now that's a formula for a never-ending race toward what you think you want. It's always there ahead of you. And then when you reach it, it's the next thing that's ahead of you. The same thing could be said for social comparison, which is another urge that drives us, or acquisition of wealth or influence. There's always drive for more, for what's next. But what about the now? In a race toward the satisfying future, is embracing the now somehow settling for less? What if we would set our sights instead on settling for the simple? Settling for the true. Settling for the immediate. Settling for the connection of right now. Since one of our ducks disappeared about a month ago, the remaining duck has become more insistent that we pay attention to it. When there were two ducks, they kept each other company. I dare say they kept each other entertained. Now the remaining duck is alone, in her duck world anyway. Before, she and the other duck would run when I came outside to fill the water bowl or the food dish. They had other things to do. They were bold and independent. Now, when I go out to fill the water, the remaining duck comes often to stand by my feet and wait. She tilts her head toward me as she waits. I will pick her up for a while at those times. She likes to be held high, so her head is up by mine. 
When I pick her up, her heart is racing, as if she senses in offering herself into my hands, she is taking a big risk, a risk that runs counter to her instincts. But as I hold her, her heart starts to slow down a bit. I pet her and talk to her. She seems to like my voice. And then when it is time, something we both seem to know, I put her down. It is, I think, my best recurring lesson on being in the now. Not the later, not the future, not the past, but the now. She wants to be held now. So I stop and do it. Blessed are those who hold their duck now. The men's study group in which I participate that meets by Zoom is reading and discussing the book Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. The title alone should give you a pretty fair idea of what the book is about. She moves back and forth between her education as a botany expert and her identity as an indigenous person of Potawatomi heritage. She weaves the two together and challenges her readers to consider the places where creation awareness touches scientific knowledge and education. In one chapter titled Maple Sugar Moon, she talks about learning to tap maple trees to make maple syrup, a piece of her indigenous heritage that carries over into modern culture. She knew about it. She knew about the stories and the traditions, but she had never done it until she lived in a farmhouse in upstate New York, which was surrounded by seven large maple trees planted years and years ago trees that bore the scars of earlier persons tapping them for their sap. She explains in the book why the sap runs in the trees at certain times, the science of it. She explains the logistics of tapping trees and then boiling the sap for syrup. It is labor-intensive. It takes time. She talks about wanting to do it the old-fashioned way with spiles hammered into the trees and buckets and barrels and hauling the sap through the snow. Her description is part scientific explanation and part practical process. But the piece of writing that moved me the most was the part where she describes the moment when she and her daughters first tapped the trees. She writes, The spiles began to drip almost as soon as we tapped them into place. The first drops splat into the bottom of the bucket. The girls slide the tented covers on which makes this on which makes the sound echo more. Trees of this diameter could accept six taps without damage, but we don't want to be greedy and only place three. 
By the time we're done setting them, the first bucket is already singing a different tune, the plink of another drop into a half inch of sap. All day long they change pitch as the buckets fill, like water glasses of different pitch. Plink, plink, plonk. The tin buckets and their tented tops reverberate with every drop, and the yard is singing. This is spring music, as surely as the cardinal's insistent whistle. My girls watch in fascination. Each drop is as clear as water, but somehow thicker, catching the light and hanging for a second at the end of the spile, growing invitingly into larger and larger drop. The girls stretch out their tongues and slurp the sap with a look of bliss. And unaccountably, I am moved to tears. It reminds me of when I alone fed them. Now on sturdy young legs, they are nursed by a maple as close as they can come to being suckled by Mother Earth. Those paragraphs are immediately followed by a detailed accounting of staying up all night and tending the fire to boil the sap and the bits of ash that end up in the syrup and the little amount of end product that results from all the barrels of collected sap. But Kimmerer says this later on. When my daughters remember our sugaring adventure now, they roll their eyes and groan. That was so much work. They remember hauling branches to feed the fire and slopping sap on their jackets as they carried heavy buckets. They tease me about being a wretched mother who wove their connection to the land through forced labor. They were awfully little to be doing the work of a sugaring crew. But they also remember the wonder of drinking sap straight from the tree. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Jesus talks about blessedness now for the poor, for the hungry, for the grieving, for the persecuted. Those conditions, none of them are conditions we would choose. They don't fit in with our goals for the future but they are part of the condition of being alive. And being alive isn't something from the past or something that is promised for the future. Being alive is now. And being alive now means that we feel things It means that we try to make meaning and sense of things. It means that we share in the human experience, which includes struggle and pain and even death. Being alive now means that we recognize that we are dependent and we are interdependent. And being poor now means that you know what is of value now. Being hungry now means you are in touch with your true needs and with your appetites now. Being Weeping now means you are well aware of what it takes to be settled, happy, and comforted again. Being hated or excluded now means that you are sensitized to human frailty and vulnerability now. I don't expect life to be perfect. It wasn't in the past, and it likely isn't going to be in the future. 
But if my yearning is away from the now, then I am losing twice. Losing the blessedness of this moment and losing my perspective on what is the best of this gift I've been given, this gift of life, the gift of breath, of awareness, of joy, of purpose, now. You probably don't have a a duck to hold, but you have something to hold something that could orient you or perhaps even anchor you in the present moment. Perhaps you hold a good thought or you hold the hand of someone who needs your touch or you hold a dream into which you are already living or you hold the assurance that you are okay no matter what the critics say. You have something to hold now. Perhaps it is sadness. Maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's even rejection. Maybe it's something you'd rather not have. But you have it now And because you have it now, you know you are alive. So hold it now. Blessed are you now. Amen.